0: Tennessee, Tennessee,
1: Tennessee, 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 Lord, i real Welcome back to another Tennessee Holler Facebook and Twitter Live. I am Holler founder Justin Cadu. We're tnHoller.com at the tnHoller on Twitter and Facebook is where you can find us. I'm at Cadu on Twitter. This is at Sassy Prof. On Twitter, Dr. Karen Cox is here. Doctor, how are you?
0: I'm great. I'm great. Great.
1: Great to have you here. Before we get started, I just want people to know that we are hollering all across the state in Knoxville, Memphis, Chattanooga, Murfreesboro, Cookville, Tri-Cities. And then I was just telling Dr. Cox that we're also in West Virginia. We have hollers everywhere. We've been growing while a lot of other publications have been furloughing reporters, and we are able to do that because of you and your support. So thank you so much because of you. Yes, Dr. Cox, we're <laughs>
0: no, doing it like all because of Dr. Cox. No, I was my West Virginia map back oh, in my head. Oh, West Virginia map,
1: yes. <laughs> but it's your small dollar monthly donations that really help us grow mm-hmm. and know that what we can count on. So thank you for all of that. We really do appreciate it. Today, we're gonna to be talking about a topic that is very relevant to us here in Tennessee. United Daughters of the Confederacy. They have a presence here. Dr. Cox, how are you? Uh, I, how about I let you tell, your, tell them who you are?
0: Oh, well, um, I'm Karen Cox. I'm a professor of history at um, the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, originally from West Virginia, but have spent the majority of my life in the South. And I, uh, my very first book was a book about the history of the United Daughters of the Confederacy called Dixie's Daughters, which, as I'm sure you know, was founded in Nashville, Tennessee in 1894.
1: Yes. And what made you start looking into that topic?
0: Uh, I, you know, I was working at a museum in North Carolina, um, and a a colleague of mine asked me to help him with a little research about a Confederate woman's home uh, that existed in Fayetteville. And, um, I just got hooked. I started interviewing members of the UDC uh, in in that state, and uh, and then I, I took it with me into my doctoral program and really explored um, the full, uh, you know, complete agenda that the UDC had. Um, and I don't know, they're just a fascinating group because it was it was an interesting um, topic to explore because these were, you know, conservative. Uh, white women from the South. And at the time, um, when I began doing the research in the early 90s, it was, um, you know, everybody, all the historians uh, were more focused on progressive women, uh, you know, fem- early Southern feminists, et cetera. And so uh, that, that's how I got into it. And then um, I'm, I'm, it's never, you know, I feel like I've never escaped it, <laughs> um, especially in the last five years.
1: Well, it's become extra relevant right now. I want to flash your book here. It's called Dixie's Daughters. Um, This is the book you wrote about the United Daughters of the Confederacy and the preservation of Confederate culture. So maybe you can give us a brief overview. What are the United Daughters of the Confederacy?
0: Sure. Um, This is a a group of women uh, who were literally the daughters or granddaughters of Confederate soldiers, Confederate veterans. Um, and uh, founded in 1894, and they um, tended to be middle-class to upper-class women at the time, and um, uh, they became the leading organization of what we historians call the Lost Cause, uh, which was really about the Confederate defeat. Um, and one of the things that, that the UDC was very successful uh, doing was to... Um, uh, <clears throat> Was to preserve that culture of the Confederacy and and obviously revise the narrative of of, of Confederate defeat um, that it was you know that the only reasons you know that the Confederacy you know, seceded that those states seceded and and fought in that war was over uh, preservation of states' rights and not slavery. Um, the thing about UDC, they had, you know, a, a broad agenda. They wanted, you know, they wanted to continue memorialization. They wanted to um, educate Southern white youth. Um, they wanted to make sure history was getting the story the pro-Southern way, uh, pro-Confederate histories, and uh, they worked, you know, in doing things, benevolent kinds of things, but it was around, you know, things like Confederate soldiers' home or women's home. But the you know the thing that they're most known for obviously is are the monuments.
1: Right. The lost cause narrative, we have a list of the few key points here from a video that you were a part of by Vox that got millions of views. The key tenets are that the Confederate fight was heroic, that enslaved people were happy, and that slavery was not the root cause of the war. Is that about sum it up?
0: Yeah, those are basic ones. Yeah, I mean it. It, it extends in a variety of directions, but th- that's basic. You know the, you know they have, there's tenets about reconstruction as as being you know sort of insult added to injury to the white South and you know lots of stuff about faithful slaves and you know the old you know the lost cause is just a mythology that extends in a variety of directions.
1: Because and it feels like that's because to acknowledge what was really going on, which is a fight to preserve an institution that kept black people enslaved, to acknowledge that, to accept that that's what was happening is essentially to acknowledge that their ancestors, that their parents and grandparents, that their forefathers were fighting for something that in the end was extremely ugly. And and it's hard for them to acknowledge and admit that. And so they decided to essentially whitewash it. Is that about right?
0: Pretty much. Yeah. Um, Yes. I mean, they, you know, the, you know, they couldn't have um, um, future generations of of white Southerners thinking that their ancestors were fighting in this, in a cause to to, uh, defend the institution of slavery, even if they weren't slave owners. I mean, there's, that's the, always the argument that's given back. Well, they, my ancestors weren't slave owners, but the war itself was about perpetuating slavery.
1: Well, I think it has taken hold here in a number of ways. Uh, I wanted to show you a video that I have here of a representative here in Tennessee that his name is Representative Mike Sparks. And this was him when I had a chance to ask him uh, if the slavery was fought over the Civil War. Yeah, Yeah. was the Civil War fought over slavery? The Was the Civil War fought over slavery? I haven't really studied it. Was history? the Civil War fought over slavery? I just think study, that we need to we, we need to we need to all what study this. We all
0: need to study You to answer that basic right.
1: question? I mean, there's different there's different context
0: different different. There's not seventy
1: different context. So so when you see that right, I mean that's again Representative Mike Sparks. He's up for re-election, uh, running against a black man in Smyrna and Murfreesboro. Uh, when you see that, what what comes to mind?
0: Um, someone who's not very well educated about history and see, the history of the Civil War.
1: See, that feels like the generous reading of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I mean, I, he's clearly avoiding, right. avoiding that because he's in a race with an African-American man.
1: Right. And so also, you know, playing to, both sides. To acknowledge that is to essentially say, you know, is, as we're talking about, is to acknowledge that it was fought for a ugly reason, right? And yeah. these monuments that are have been put up all over the state, they are obviously there to glorify what happened and to acknowledge that that was a fight over slavery does the opposite. So, you know, is that, do you think the point of these statues that were put up all across the country and especially here in Tennessee, I'll show a couple of them right now, but you know, is the point basically to change what happened?
0: Well, I I don't know if it's to change what, it's definitely about changing the narrative, you know, so these Confederate monuments um, especially after the UDC was founded in 1894 began going up in these very public spaces, primarily on the grounds of, courthouses and at the state capitol. And and so, uh, you know, the way I refer to them is they're they're really not um, uh, objects that tell us much about uh, the Confederate past. What they tell us is about the generation that put them there. And so um, I think of them as artifacts of Jim Crow um, and segregation and white supremacy and, and all of that, you know, that goes with that. So the, the message is not one of history of of the uh, Confederate past, but uh, it, it's really a telling um, uh, artifact of the generation that placed them there. And so, and, and the whole thing is, I think it's really important, and, and it relates to the box video, which is that the UDC was uh, not necessarily looking backward when they placed these monuments there. They were looking forward. They were looking to the future future of of uh, white Southerners and these young children, and if they might be able to influence uh, influence their, their thinking. And the thing about it is it's like, you know, monuments by themselves may seem static, right? They're just standing there. But early UDC members would take their take school children over to those monuments and offer them lessons about it. And it would be taught in the school. So it's the monument is as part of this whole arsenal that the UDC has. Um, in order to inculcate children with a, a particular point of view about it's about states' rights and not slavery. These were heroic men, etc. And so that gets perpetuated over generations. And so monuments are definitely part of that. Um, and they are also because of their location on the grounds of courthouses, send a very negative message to Black communities um, across the region that you're Absolutely. second, you're second-class citizens.
1: Absolutely. I want to check out some of the questions we have coming in right now. Jeffrey asks, weren't the monuments erected after World War II? When were a lot of these monuments erected?
0: They were, the vast majority were erected before World War I. Um, they were uh, erected between, and they kind of follow the rise of the UDC. Um, the UDC reached a membership of around 100,000 women by World War I. That's also the time when these, the vast majority of monuments went up. And so the, the figures that we have from the Southern Poverty Law Center are, you know, they vary, but it's approximately 750 to 800 monuments that they've, that they've erected. Uh, of that number, the vast majority were built between 1890, let's say 1894 and World War One. Um, we do see monuments continuing to be built after that in every decade um, uh, since, since the First World War.
1: Okay. So they're, continually going up there's one that is in our capital that's a kkk grand wizard bust uh nathan bedford Forrest, that was put there in the 70s and that's a source of a lot of contention here that's actually what rep mike sparks was going to pontificate on when i asked him that question and when he refused to uh acknowledge the civil war was fought over slavery uh Another question that I saw in here was about textbooks. Can you tell us uh, what influence are they trying to have or having on textbooks? I know that a lot of people who are sympathetic or, you know, consider themselves part of the United Daughters of the Confederacy either support school board members or our school board members run for the school board and it feels like a big part of the agenda is to make sure that these things are taught in textbooks.
0: Um yes, that's been their agenda since they were founded in 1894. Um uh it, it began then um with them, you know, and they had a lot more power as an organization in the early 20th century than I mean in the early yeah, 20th century than they do in the 21st. But um as you recognize that there there's still a concern about that. Um the textbooks during the 1950s, for example, in the 60s, there was a concern among um, white Southerners that you know, these textbooks also uh, you know, present the, the Southern version of you know, segregation. You know? and, um, and so you, you continue to have the lost cause version of events can, uh, are found in textbooks throughout the region um, to the point where they don't want to acknowledge that slavery was a cause of the civil war and may not even u- refer to the enslaved as as enslaved, but as servants, uh, which makes it seem as though the the um, that slavery is some sort of benign institution.
1: Right. And so this is something that people need to really be on the guard against and for, you know, this is something that's happening very seriously in our state you know, definitely a lot of school board members are think this way and have these feelings. And it's something that, you know, we need to be aware of. And, you know, I, I just, I feel like people are not really that aware. Do you, do you feel like it's an insidious movement or do you feel like this is just coming from a good place and this is what these people think? Like what, how high does mean this mean the go?
0: textbooks? Just all of it. Textbooks?
1: All of it. Is there, is um, there, is it a coordinated effort that, that has, you know, some sort of, insidious goal or is it people that genuinely are coming from a place of you know this is how they think
0: well let's just say that they were coming from some genuine place and this is how they think Well, they're still wrong Um, i mean it is historically inaccurate but what you've seen over the last um few years and you know i've written this i've just completed a draft of a book about the history of confederate monuments and what i like noticed particularly Beginning in the uh, in the first decade of the 21st century is uh, is how politicians began to to politicize um, the history of you know of the Confederacy, whether it was a, over symbols of uh, Confederate symbols or uh, you know and, and and just be clear that textbooks are are political; they always have been. Uh, they're seen as a way to to influence um, children. Um, The bad thing about it is that now that, you know, schools are, you know, technically um, desegregated, uh, although I'm sure they've resegregated in different kinds of ways uh, through charter schools, uh, things like that, um, is that that if that message is being taught in the public schools also to African-American children. And so, um, you know, which I find really problematic. And so I I even know that, uh, for example, in a you know, I I usually just throw out this question to my students who are, you know, at the university where I teach, and they'll and I'll say, Well, what did you learn about the civil war in your high school class? And they'll tell me that the civil war was, was about states' rights. It's getting taught in the schools. And so, and it's 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 probably because it's in these textbooks. It could be because these individuals are sympathetic to to the you know <laughs>
1: isn't the answer to the state's rights or the the question about the state's rights thing, uh, state's right to do what, right. You know, what do you think they were fighting for? What, what exactly did they want to do? You know, and state's rights is what's used even now to defend all kinds of ugly things. You know, when, when they, when it's convenient, for instance, right now in Portland, we're seeing federal agents grabbing people off the streets and throwing them in unmarked vans, Tear gas fired at mothers, uh, tear gas fired in people's faces, a guy who was shot in the face. And the state's rights people, as Portland and Oregon are saying, we don't want these people here. The state's rights people have nothing to say about that. So
0: that's the most fascinating thing. It's like when when the president issued an executive order just a couple of days ago that he says, basically, these states where they're, you know, are, are caving into um, the radical fringe over over these monuments and markers and everything. He's he's basically undermining states' rights. But the, the other part of this um, is that within the states themselves, um, which to me is very you know anti-Southern, <laughs> within the states themselves in these in these uh, GOP-dominated legislators, they've undermined local control. So they don't see a problem with it you know they, they've already undermined local control over confederate monuments and so um, you know and it, by extension that's what this executive order just just basically right. did right and and so it's it you know traditionally the south has been like function as you know like local control was an important you know element of our, our governance and so um and, and see so what you've been seeing over a variety of issues but definitely on the monument issue, an an undermining of local control
1: that's exactly right and it just seems like there's no actual consistency to the argument that they make uh what do you think people should really know about the united daughters of confederacy as sort of a lasting uh understanding of who they are like what are they now have they changed over time is there you know a difference between what they do now and what they did then and how prevalent are they in our society i know that the Confederate, the United of the Confederacy are who were fighting the battle in Franklin around Chip in the middle of Franklin, that statue, some pastors and a few other people want to do, put something around it essentially to give it more context. And they were the ones that they had to deal with. What are they now? How prevalent are they?
0: Well, they're definitely a different kind of organization today than they were in the early 20th century. They're they're not nearly the size that they were in the early 20th excuse me, in the early 20th century, and they don't necessarily have the, the, the type of political influence that they used to. Um, but you do find elements of them, you know, groups that, that um, you know, mo- that often push back. I mean, when Charlottesville happened, the, the general division of the UDC just put out a statement on its website, which is still there saying we're just a patriotic organization. We don't believe in this kind of stuff. But they, it, it, the thing is, is, is sort of like turning a blind eye to their own history as an organization and, and the legacy of, of that organization. The numbers now, I, I couldn't tell you. I mean, and, and I'm sure they're not gonna tell you either. So they right. keep that secret. Um, the last I, I knew, this was several years ago, was there was maybe 20,000. I think there's less than that for sure now. And what we, what you've seen in, in the, you know, is this kind of reversal of roles so that where women used to be the leaders of the, of this, you know, the, uh, the heritage movement or the lost cause, it's, it's, it's been taken over by um, neo-Confederates, but particularly the Sons of Confederate Veterans. It used to be that, you know, they couldn't even get the Sons of Confederate Veterans to donate to a monument. They were like, they were, it was these women just basically shaming these guys into supporting a Confederate monument. Now in the 21st century, all of a sudden they're all, you know, defenders of these symbols.
1: Right. The sons of the Confederate veterans are who stood up to defend the KKK grand wizard bust here in Tennessee, which by the way, had a big vote go against it, but there's another one in October coming that people need to stay on their toes for. Uh, But so what is the relationship between the two? is is it, is it, they're different organizations I, obviously well
0: they're they're different i mean they're they're different and they're similar i mean they're you know one's one's just a women's organization one's a man's organization but that you know one was you know the udc was founded in 1894 the sons in 1896 but they they have essentially been they had essentially been the primary sort of confederate heritage organizations until the 1990s when you got uh beginning of neo confederate groups like the league of the south which right. started to push the SCV a further right here. Um, I think that the the two, you know, the women and the men organization could, you know, basically get along, but the men are much more, more active uh, and willing to show up in, in public spaces around these monuments.
1: The league of the South uh, has a connection to the Nathan Bedford Forest statue next to I-65. Oh yeah. Uh, and actually just so people know, which you probably don't, um, there was an amendment in session last month that sought to put plants next to the highway to obscure the view of that statue, not take it down because it's on private property, wouldn't have cost anything. They would have been donated plants. Republicans here in Tennessee voted that down. They wouldn't even let the view of a KKK grand wizard, uh, Confederate general be obstructed in, despite everything going on, this is during the protests, all of it, there's been a 38-day protest outside the Nashville Capitol that Governor Lee has sent his henchmen troopers after, has refused to meet with these people. And while all that's going on, they still wouldn't even let them plant trees to obscure this racist statue that was built by a guy that was, I think, maybe started the group you're talking about, the League. He, he, was of the one of the,
0: he was one of the founding members of that organization. And I think when he put it up, he said, you know, the monuments in Nathan Bedford Forest, he said, you know, we need somebody to put in a word for slavery.
1: A good word for slavery. He yeah. did say that. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's really helpful to hear you talk about this stuff. Your book, again, is called The Dixie's Daughters. And where can people find it?
0: Oh, you know, on all the outlets, <laughs> the University Press of Florida is the publisher. They, they, you can get it there. I need to plug them, but any, any other uh, um, online retailer probably could, they can find it.
1: Okay, great. Well, I appreciate you coming on here and talking to us about this. I feel like this is something that people really need to be aware of. And I would also encourage everybody out there, ask your legislators if the civil war was fought over slavery. It's a very simple question. And as we saw with rep Mike Sparks, he could not answer it because he does not want to acknowledge the ugliness that it was. And when they do that, they do tell on themselves quite a bit. So they will all have a hard time with that question. Ask it to them, do it on video, send the video to the holler and we will holler it out there and make sure that people understand where the people who won't admit this thing is hiding. I'm the grandchild of two Holocaust survivors and the way that Germany deals with the Holocaust and, you know, Nazi insignias. And, you know, I'm not saying that slavery, I'm not equating the two, although, you know, they are equally, you know, they're both horrible institutions, but the way that they have erased uh, the honoring of Nazi war heroes, so to speak, which is exactly what they're trying to do here in the Confederacy, is a far cry from what we're doing here. In Germany, they have basically said, we are ashamed of this. This should never have happened. They've even paid reparations to some Jews. Here, you get a sense that some of the people are disappointed with the result of that war. And the Daughters of the Confederacy. Help perpetuate that, and so Dr. Cox, thank you for writing a book about it. If there's anything else you want to tell people, now's the time.
0: I want to shout out to Manila Uppelman at Austin P. and Bob Hutton at UT Knoxville, and everybody wear your mask when you go outside. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Hi, Manoa. Good to see you always. Thank you for coming on here, Dr. Cox. Stay in touch. Okay. And uh, this audio will be available as a podcast on our iTunes feed. Subscribe on iTunes to the Holler podcast. We put up these interviews. We put up all kinds of audio highlights and other things that we do. So hit subscribe on the audio feed up there, and we'll be posting clips of uh, a clip or two of Dr. Cox also on the Holler at the Holler. Uh, at the TN Holler on Twitter and Facebook, TNHoller.com. And she's at Sassy Prof. Thank you, Karen.
0: Thank you. To